Hello and welcome to this podcast from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Eric Kaufman, who's reader in politics and sociology at Birkbeck in London. This month, Eric is bringing out a book entitled Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? To which a simple answer is, yes, probably, if the demographic trend, which suggests a correlation between fundamentalist belief and fertility rate, continues. Eric argues that as those with strong religious beliefs, be they Muslim, Christian or Jewish, increase in number, so too will their political clout. And that has implications for freedoms that liberal modernity has led us to take for granted in the West. Freedom of choice over birth control and abortion, freedom of speech, women's rights and so on. So I began my interview by remarking that the book gave a strong impression that the gains made by modern secularism were far from irreversible. Yeah, that's that's one of the messages of the book is that in fact we have seen secularization. Uh, we're seeing it now, in particularly in Western Europe, but that actually it is reversible. It's it, it's not necessarily going to be the case that you're going to have mass religious enthusiasm that's going to reverse secularism or people drifting back into the churches. It's much more a case in my book of a sort of hidden mechanism, slow return of religion through demography, through either in this case, either religious immigration or through higher uh, religious fertility than secular fertility. Let's tease apart those two things sure. then. I mean, tell me about demography. How does demography work in tandem with the changing shape of the religious complexion of the planet? Right. Well, most people uh, on the planet get their religion from their parents. So it's it's a largely inherited faith. There, there are actually comparatively few people who choose their religion. I mean, it's more common in the United States than anywhere else, but still there's a very high inherited component. And what that means is then demography is going to have a big impact on faith. So Islam is the world's fastest growing religion, that or fastest growing major religion. And that is because of demography. It's because the Muslim world has had large, very fast population growth compared to other parts of the world. That's just one example of how uh, demography can affect religion. Whereas Atheism and non-religion has declined. Now, that isn't strictly just because of demography. It's also because of the collapse of communism, but it's also because of demography. So the two things together um, have an impact. And do you think there is a, there's a relationship between these fertility rates of atheists and believers in terms of their sort of worldview, that the worldview of an atheist tends to be more individualistic, therefore the birth rate drops, whereas there's a more communitarian attitude among religious believers. Yeah, I mean, that's um, sort of one of the uh, aspects that I get into in my book, and that is that there's a link. I mean, if you look at the holy texts, particularly the Abrahamic texts, go forth and multiply, for example. I mean, there's an emphasis on women as in the role of mothers, traditional women's roles. And those emphases on traditional gender roles and on fertility will lead to higher fertility if you take those injunctions seriously. So there is a a reason to believe there's actually a logic behind higher religious fertility, particularly higher religious fundamentalist fertility. And we can also talk about injunctions against birth control and abortion and so forth. Likewise, with secularism, this idea of expressive individualism fits in very well with delaying childbirth, perhaps choosing to travel and have a career, also women's liberation, all of these things. So you would think logically they would lead to different fertility patterns. And in fact, the data pretty well all over the world show that 
trend. And really, I think we, we also need to distinguish there are two trends here. One is the fact that the religious, particularly fundamentalists, have higher fertility than moderate and secular people. Uh, the other is the indirect effect. So the indirect effect is where you have poor people who, or rural people who happen to be more religious, not and happen to have large families. They have large families not because they're more religious, but because they're poor. But they happen also to be religious, so when they move to the cities, when they move to more prosperous societies, they bring their religion with them. So that's there are two things going on. One is the direct effect of religious people having more kids, and the other is the indirect effect of poor people, A, having more kids, and B, being more religious. As parts of the developing world become better off as sanitation as infant mortality are addressed do you believe that the fertility rate will drop among the religious or do you think that the trend line will continue in its present direction well in the developing world what's already happening is fertility rates are coming down quite quickly uh, in fact the un predicts that by the mid 2030s we'll have replacement level fertility on a worldwide basis so that it's already happening but What's important to note is it's, it's actually happening to poor countries. But if you look within those countries, there is a growing disjunction between the fundamentally religious and the rest. And this is partly what some of the new demographic theories are discovering, is that as infant mortality is cut, as there's better sanitation, as there's more availability of contraception, how many children you have is no longer forced upon you by material circumstances, such as having to have children because most of them will die or because they need to work the land. So why do you have more children? Increasingly, it becomes a choice. Increasingly, it becomes linked to values. So you have a stronger and stronger link between religious fundamentalism and religious belief and fertility. So in the Muslim world, for example, in the countryside, there's no real connection between how much you support Sharia law and how many children you have. In the cities where there is less of a ins material incentive to have children, there is more availability of contraception. There you actually see a, a growing gap between those who believe strongly in Sharia, that that should be the law of the land. They have twice the fertility rate of those who are most opposed to Sharia. So actually what's happening is in the more modern contexts, you get a bigger gap between the religious and the secular. So it's almost a curious aspect of modernization. Do you think there is a serious threat to Western liberal secular ways of life in this shift, this demographic shift that you describe? I actually do. I think it's a longer term threat. It's shorter term in some societies, but I think it's a matter of a century or two if we're really talking about major shifts in Western Europe or in the United States. But I think you can look at certain countries such as Israel and see the shift happening more quickly. Um, so if you look at the ultra-Orthodox in Israel who have three times the fertility of other Jews, uh, particularly of secular Jews, they've increased from several percentage of the population in 1948 to, um, I mean, if you look at the primary schools in Israel, one-third of Jewish primary schoolers uh, in grade one are now ultra-Orthodox. That's up from several percent in 1960. And, and the same thing is actually happening in the Jewish diaspora. So in Britain and the United States, uh, ultra-Orthodox have three to four times the fertility rate. In Britain, they are 17% of the Jewish population. They're three-quarters of the Jewish births. And, and so you see these astounding trends. By 2050, they'll have taken over 
uh, Anglo jury, American jury, and in Israel it'll happen in the second half of the of this century. So th that's going to mean an astounding change. Already you're seeing the power of the ultra-Orthodox parties in Israel has um, multiplied. They're now a factor in the peace process in blocking concessions uh, on East Jerusalem and in a whole series of issues. That's only going to become more powerful. I mean, they're involved in boycotts of particular products that promote evolution or, you know, and they're involved in Shabbat, uh, sort of no driving on the Sabbath in parts of Jerusalem. So that, that kind of politics is going to become more influential as a result of demography, of the kind that I'm talking about. Yes, it's happening first in Israel, but I believe it's a, a manifestation of a broader trend that will make itself felt uh, also in, in Europe and the United States. You talk about those with fundamentalist beliefs making common cause with other fundamentalists of different faiths within a particular polity in order to effect political change, like, for example, on abortion or birth control. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we see this particularly in the U.S., but also in Europe. So in the United States, you've had very good cooperation between conservative Mormons, conservative evangelicals, and conservative Catholics, and also, incidentally, conservative Jews and Muslims. Prior to 9-11, the Muslims were very much in the... A lot of conservative Muslims were in the Republican camp, partly because of this support for traditional gender roles and family values. And, and in fact, if you look at some recent political developments uh, in California, Proposition 8, the anti-gay marriage proposition, which passed because of cooperation between Mormon, Catholic, Evangelical, uh, Latino, Catholic, African-American, they were all cooperating and managed to win the vote on the basis of that sort of ecumenical or interfaith fundamentalism. I thought it was fascinating what you say about why some movements or sects or, or cults succeed and why others d dwindle. And I wondered if you could maybe as a case study say a little bit about the sort of respective positions of the Jehovah's Witnesses and of the Mormons, because one, the Mormons seem to be going from strength to strength and the Jehovah's Witnesses seem to be sort of stalled. And it seems that they sort of exemplify different aspects of, of what makes a, a fundamentalist belief system thrive or fail. What I argue is there are really two types of fundamentalism. There is the more evangelical, open, proselytizing fundamentalism, which is actually much more successful in the developing world. So Pentecostalism, for example, in Latin America, in Africa, parts of Asia, has been a roaring success. And actually so have the Jehovah's Witnesses, partly because they are open, they aren't closed, they are able to make more converts than, say, you know, the Amish or perhaps the ultra-Orthodox. However, those sorts of evangelical fundamentalists, I would argue, are not very successful in the West, in the more jaded uh, modern context of the West, the more what Weber would call disenchanted context, where people are not so easily swayed by their arguments. What I argue is that in the West, in the more secular contexts of the West, it's the uh, groups that grow their own and that have strong communal boundaries that do well. The the ultra-Orthodox, the Mormons, the Amish, for example. These are all groups that are actually amongst the fastest growing or the fastest growing uh, religions in the West. People don't necessarily think of this, but he, only the very fastest growing megachurch in non-denominational megachurches in the U.S. can match the Amish or Hutterite growth rates. And, and so I look to them as a sort of a model. And increasingly you can see American fundamentalists seeing what's going on and saying we have to emulate the Mormons and the ultra-Orthodox. We have to have stronger communal boundaries. We have to have higher fertility. 
they're trying, in, in Daniel Dennis' words, to kind of backwards engineer and design a successful religion based around these properties. And, and the most extreme example of that in the U.S. is the Quiverful movement, which, in which the founder of the Quiverful movement, Doug Phillips, who's the son of Christian Right founder Howard Phillips, so has a lot of political clout, but his, he has eight children himself, and their vision is no birth control, no abortion. We're going to have as large families as we can. That's a sign from God. And he actually has what he calls a 200-year plan for domination based on the fact that everyone else's fertility is declining. And the quiverful, if they can maintain their fertility, will have dynasties of... I mean, some of these quiverful leaders talk about having dynasties of hundreds of thousands of descendants in 200 years. And that is an explicit goal of this movement. And I think that's just a, a reflection of the kind of fundamentalism that will be successful in a Western context and that we're probably going to see more of you know, in a century or two and that the influence of that kind of group is going to be very much more important. Yes, Israel is the first place it's going to be important, but I think that paradigm will spread to other parts of the West as well. So is it being overdramatic to say that secular liberalism contains with its commitment to um, individualism, toleration, plurality, contains the seeds of its own destruction? I think it does. But I would hasten to say, I mean, I think it does under current conditions. I don't want to suggest that religious fundamentalism will inevitably win. But I think under current conditions, it will win, effectively. That, that the contradiction is, is this, and that is that fundamentalism is a reaction, a response to secularism. And secularism, in operating with a sort of very individualistic ethos, is going to have trouble sustaining itself demographically. So whereas if you look at Karl Marx and his, his model of the collapse of, if you like, the liberal capitalist system, and he argues it was going to be the contradictions between labor and capital that would lead to the collapse of the system. You then had other writers, like, such as Daniel Bell, who I quote a lot in the book, saying, well, no, it's actually going to be cultural contradictions between the need for a disciplined work ethic to sustain capitalism and the ethos of hedonism within capitalism, which undermines the system. But actually, that hasn't occurred. The system has coped with social breakdown of the family, etc., rather well. What I'm arguing is really what the threat is going to come from is not a breakdown of capitalism, but rather the slow demographic takeover by anti-liberal elements within liberal society. So, so in a way, you could argue the contradiction is between secularism's aims and its ability to sustain itself demographically. So I think there is a, there's definitely something happening there. I mean, if we put it in the context of Francis Fukuyama's argument about the end of history, uh, liberal democratic capitalism, my argument is that, and, and Fukuyama says, you know, if you read classical writers, Polybius and Cicero, or even Khaldun uh, in the Arab world. And their argument was, well, advanced civilizations always succumb to individualism and decadence and are they have to be taken over and reinvigorated by barbarians, such as Visigoths, or, or in the case of the Arabs, it was the Mongols, that these groups then bring a sort of less sophisticated but stronger social cohesion. Uh, and Fukuyama says, well, actually, the sort of Western liberal democratic societies are protected now by advanced weapons systems, so they can't be sacked by barbarians who may have stronger social cohesion. However, I think another possibility is where you might have, again, an internal 
not an external guns blazing kind of takeover, but a sort of internal conquest by more disciplined, high fertility, high boundary groups, these endogenous growth groups, uh, just slowly, generation after generation, becoming a larger and larger share of the population. Maybe religious immigration will play a role in that too, gradually conquering from the inside. So there's where I would see the challenge, if you like, to the end of history model. Eric Kaufman. Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth is published this month in paperback. You can find out full details on the Blackwell website at blackwell.co.uk. Until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye.